Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up post, Another Week Ends, which is sort of like our Christian grace infusion. We like to think cosmopolitan-ish guide to the contents of the interwebs as we see them for the week. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by David Zoll and sitting in for Sarah Condon, Charlotte Donlin. They'll discuss with me the contents of Another Week Ends, but first, this week I had the distinct privilege of chatting with an old friend and a good friend, Tony Jones. Tony most recently was asked to consult on Hulu's wildly popular show, The Path, in the most recent season. He was a consultant in their writing session, which is pretty interesting to hear about. He's also the author, most recently, of Did God Kill Jesus? He's also the trade editor at Fortress Press, and he's edited the books of several popular guests from last year, including Richard Beck, Jeffrey Pugh, and most recently, Jason Michelli. So it was a real pleasure to talk with Tony about a whole host of things. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. I give you my old friend and good friend, Tony Jones. Tony Jones, welcome to the Mockingcast. How are you? It's great to be back, buddy. It's great to see you, hear your voice, see your red glasses. I see my red glasses, my Elton John glasses. <laughs> uh, you know, there's uh, there's so much I want to talk to you about. But first, like the the thing that is like I've been thinking about ever since we talked a couple weeks ago. You were hired to go be a consultant on the path, right? Hulu's um, uh, serial Hulu's, drama. Hulu's Aaron Paul vehicle. Yeah. Yeah, like that, I mean, you've got to feel like, hey, when you do like uh, graduate work in religious studies, the first thing you're not, you're, you're not thinking, my guess is, is, hey, this is going to lead to Hollywood consulting work, of course. <laughs> right, That's right. why I would study this stuff. What was it like? Well, how did that happen? I was sitting out there in, in the meetings and thinking like, how exactly do I put this on my CV? Like <laughs> under, what, under what category, consulting or something? How it happened was... Um, well, as you know, like my life went through kind of a personal, you know, conflagration a few years ago. And so a lot of the a lot of the things in the world that I had been focused on achieving and and having my work really well respected and well reputed in all just like went away overnight, including like during the publication of my last book and stuff. And it's something I've even talked to you about a little bit, you know, like uh, off mic, but um, I really got spurned by places where like quite on, I mean, I'll just name them like Princeton Seminary, Yale Divinity School, places where I had done work before. Like the, I felt like the East Coast turned its back on me because of um, accusations that my ex-wife made about me on the internet and all of which were untrue. But what's interesting is at that very same time, like on the West Coast, people don't really care so much about that. So if you can't find grace in the church, you can find some in Hollywood. <laughs> Hollywood. No, I, Hollywood. I'm not kidding, Scott. Yeah. I mean, yeah. really, it, it's, it's amazing to me. Um, even when I was in the writer's room, which I'm jumping ahead a little bit, like at one point during a lunch conversation, people started asking me about that in my life. And I told them um, a little bit about you know, my 
that story and what happened to my career in like in the theological world. And they were completely shocked that people in the church would be so like um, so receptive to false accusations on the internet. They were like, we really would have thought that church people would be more sophisticated than that, you know, Um, and be more interested in truth. Yeah. Yeah. And there's this term that I became aware of through that whole situation, discernment blogger. Mm-hmm. I had never heard that term. It, it's it, it it's it's awful. Uh, it's it's as if someone could discern anything from the yeah. blogosphere about somebody yeah. else's <laughs> life. I mean, it's just it's just like the ultimate. Like it's just crazy that that, that that's totally a thing. Crazy. So a buddy of mine, um, whom I'd known for many years uh, through like the homebrewed uh, Christianity podcast world, and we we'd done we just talked about the creative process and writing and stuff. He and I launched um, a podcast called Killer Serials, which is about where we just like pick a show that's got some kind of religious or spiritual theological themes, and we just do like an episode a week on that show. You know, it's funny, like if you reach, if, if you're doing something like that and you start reaching out to um, TV, like production studios and what, and, and dis- distribution places, they'll be like, uh, oh, you're media here's like, we're going to give you online access to all of our, our episodes, our press kits, and tell us which people from the show you would like to interview on your podcast. And we're like, we've like 150 downloads an episode, you know, but they don't, they're like, whatever. They don't know. You look sexy with the name of the killer serials. Yeah. And they, they probably look you up on Twitter and go, oh, he's got 16,000 Twitter followers. Like if he tweets about our show, that, that, how, that's a good thing. So we like interviewed one of the uh, stars of the show, a guy who plays a kid named Hawk. And then um, we got uh, my partner, Ryan, um, he got in touch with Hulu and who got in touch with the showrunner, Jess uh, Goldberg. And she, she like came up with the show and they were like, yeah, come to our office and, and uh, interview her. Like, that's cool. We'd love that. So the next thing we know, like I fly out to LA and we're in her office and these are the same people who made um, Friday night lights and parenthood. And so like there's Friday night lights memorabilia all over the place, you know, like, wow. like the, the thing that says like home of the Dylan Panthers or whatever that it's like hanging on the wall, the thing from the locker room. And that's uh, amazing. Yeah. And so we're sitting in her office. She's like, um, you guys want some sushi? And we just sit there and interview her for, you know, for our podcast for 35 minutes or whatever. And then we turn off the stuff and she starts asking us religion questions. And, and uh, you know, my, I, I have a PhD, as you know, from Princeton. And Ryan has a PhD from GTU in um, theology and film. So um, I'm more of like a more traditional orthodox theology guy. And he's more of like a, you know, inner, <clears throat> like a interdisciplinary guy. And we just start talking to her about faith and religion. And she's like, I want to stay in touch with you guys. And then like, I don't know, I dropped her an email over the summer and said, Hey, congratulations on getting season two. Hope it's, hope the filming is going well and whatever. Didn't hear back from her. And then all of a sudden this fall, her assistant's like, when can you guys come and have lunch with Jess? And it's weird because it's like, they don't really get that. I live in Minnesota. They just assume everybody lives in LA. They just assume that. <laughs> Yeah, LA or New York, right? Everybody, yeah, everybody just like, lives in LA oh, or New yeah. York. 
we can have lunch. Uh, we can have lunch in two weeks, and I like get on Spirit Airlines and buy an you know buy, or like buy a plane ticket for like a hundred and nineteen bucks round trip, and and I go have lunch in Hollywood with uh, <laughs> with this TV show creator. And she, we just like have this three hour lunch where she's asking us more and more questions. Did you go to like a swank restaurant? I mean, was it no, like we ate in her office? Here's how it works out there. Like people, um, they all have assistants, right? And you show up and then they hand you a menu and they're like, what do you want? My assistant's going to go buy us lunch, you know? Oh, wow. You order lunch and there's a kitchen full of like craft services, which is like snacks and food and whatever. So. Uh, we get in the, you know, we, we sit there, we talk with her and she's like, this is really interesting. Um, I just really want to stay in touch with you guys. Okay, great. Blah, blah, blah. And then we get a call from her in like December and I was pheasant hunting in South Dakota. And she's like, I need to have a phone call with you guys in the next 24 hours. So I'm like in the, in a pickup truck in a cornfield, like with one bar of reception (laughs) And again, because she just assumes everyone's like, whatever, in Hollywood. Or what. And yeah, she's like, right. we, I want to hire you guys to be in the writer's room with us uh, while we, what's called, break the show, which means br- when we break season three. And we're like, I like don't know any of this lingo, right? And Ryan's texting me while we're on this call. He's like, holy shit, this is incredible. And breaking, <laughs> the, breaking the season means you're um, laying out kind of the what's going to happen in season three. So we're like, yeah, of course, of course. And the next thing I know, I'm like uh, on the phone negotiating a price, like a consulting fee with a lawyer from NBC Universal, you know, uh, for spending a week out there. So that's how it came to be. You know, it's just one of these things. Wow. I mean, was it pretty like, and you you told me that it was a pretty thrilling experience. I mean, creativity wise, right? I mean, just... Yeah, so then we get there, uh, and this happened last month, and we just, you know, we go into a room. It's it's Jess, the showrunner, seven writers. Jess is in there, and then she's got three assistants that are, like, on the outside of the circle. And then there are these writers. There, there are um, seven writers. And, I, you know, we just don't know. Like, we walk into the room, Ryan, and I, like, not, not really knowing what we're going to, where we're going to be in the circle. Like, think kind of thinking we're going to be on the outside. And they're going to occasionally like look at us and ask us a question or whatever about religion. But we're right there in the middle, man. So the creative process was, uh, it's very laid back. Like I thought it would be more directed, but it started with day one. We watched the final four episodes of season two, which haven't released on Hulu yet, but we watched them to get us the kind of, you know, get us kind of the momentum of what's happening in the story when the season ends. You want, do they have a theater or their condiments or their popcorn? What? Yeah, there's like, there's like a kitchen full of snacks from Trader Joe's. And, um, you know, you're just eating carbs and drinking coffee nonstop the whole time. And, they, and, and they're all chewing gum a lot, I think, so that they don't eat so many snacks. And uh, no, they just like show it on a DVD, on a TV, on like, it's like the the same cart you've got at the church with the uh, like the velcro strap that holds the TV <laughs> on, on the on the cart and then the like the the DVD player that kind of works and sometimes like gets a little glitchy sometimes that exactly is how it happened. What were they asking you? Like what were they I mean what are they you know you're consulting I mean what are they what's the most interesting thing they asked you? Well, for instance, we worked on a thing in season for season 3, a storyline in which the um the the cult 
would kind of come into contact with um, other they, – they've never really explored in the show where the people who are part of this cult or movement, depending if you're inside or, or outside of it, they come in contact with other religious people and culture. So then, like, what does it mean when they – and I'm and so I'll be like, oh, well, when, when like, the local pastors in a, in a town – and it's kind of set in Nyack, New York-ish. I mean, hypothetically, that is where they film it. But that so it's kind of in like a you know like a medium-sized town in upstate New York. And I'm like, well, if all the ministers got together, what they would do is they'd get together for lunch once a month, and they'd call it the ministerium, and they'd like have the rabbi, you know, the the reform rabbi, the Baptist pastor might not come because he doesn't want to have lunch with the like female Episcopal I, I only go to those meetings based on the what, what I think the menu will be like. Like at the Catholic Ministerium, they sit there. It's a sit-down dinner. Nuns serve at three courses. <laughs> like the Presbyterian Church on the street, it's like bad cold cuts. Like it's, you know what I mean? Like it's that the, the kind of food is a big, because those are boring meetings. Yeah. So the question would be like, what would a ministerium, like let's say um, there's a group of like the Baptist pastor and the Episcopal priest and the Catholic priest and the and the Jewish rabbi and they're like having their monthly lunch. What would they do if uh, if a cult leader walked in? Like, how would they respond? And that's where I'm like, oh, I can tell you. Like, I've been in those lunches. I can tell you exactly how they would respond. Wait, were those? I mean, you know, there's like the stereotype, like, okay, Hollywood, it's anti-religious. You know, they say, you know, the war on Christmas. I mean. Like were they? I mean, they seemed like a, a religiously curious group of people. They're not antagonistic toward religion. I mean, some of them in the room are probably skeptical toward religion. I think one person in the room is an actively practicing religious person. Other people told me on the side, like, "Well, I found out when I walked in the room." Like, as as Jess is introducing people around the room, she's like, "Oh yeah, Tony's is the book we all sent you." Like, she sent everybody a copy of "Did God Kill Jesus." Because she thought the opening story in that about this like youth evangelist, I tell this opening story, you may remember about the youth evangelist, like really yeah. laying it on thick with the, and she was like, I wanted these writers to read that to get a sense of that's a kind of religious persuasion that we can try to maybe capture in the, in the television show. So it was stuff, you know, with, no, they were totally open. They treated us as from from the moment we stepped foot in the room, they treated us as equals for the entire week we were there. It was super fun. And I mean, like, we had to leave, and they're going to stay together for 19 more weeks writing season three of this show. And I was like, I would love to be in this room for the, you know, for the next 19 weeks. Yeah, and the, and you said, you know, they they read your book. I mean, how did they interact with your book, your most recent book? Like, what was that? I don't know how many of them actually read it. I know they sent it out to people. I, you know, I had one, I had a, one or two people pull me aside like during a lunch break and say like, I'm, I'm reading your book and I find it fascinating. I've never, you know, I've always had questions about the crucifixion or whatever. And, you know, these are probably people who've like grew up in the church and are not practicing faith today. I think it's a kind of a curiosity that people are like actually really into religion. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And it is a great title. I mean, it's interesting. I, I'm reading this book right now called um, I Want You to Be, and the subtitle is On the God of Love. And it's by this guy, Thomas Halick, who's a Czech 
psychotherapist who became a priest under communism, like underground seminary. Like, oh my gosh, they'd, they'd fly like Charles Taylor in to teach and all these other theologians, but it was all underground. Like, he's amazing. I mean, it, it's just, but he says that, um, uh, I'm convinced that the, those two questions, does God exist and does love make sense, are not only conditional on each other, but they are act- but they are actually, in the framework of another word game, one and the same question. I know of no better translation of the statement, God exists, than the phrase, love makes sense. And, you know, you kind of say in the beginning of Did God Kill Jesus that the kind of hermeneutical test here, the smell test for your understanding of the mystery of the atonement is, is does it reveal the love of God or the God is love or, or does it obfuscate that picture of God? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that, is that a kind of fair like way into your book? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I, I think, I mean, that's, that's kind of the framework I put over the whole thing. And I think some people would probably say, um, that's irrelevant. All that's relevant is the biblical material. Like what does the Bible say about, um, Jesus atoning work on the cross? Uh, but I guess I'm willing to put this kind of superimpose this guideline of love over all the various interpretations of the atonement, because I don't think the Bible is, you know, univocal about what Jesus' death on the cross actually accomplished, like spiritually and cosmically speaking. So if you're like, then how are you going to take all these various interpretations of the cross and kind of wrestle them into one um, kind of into one framework by which you can then judge them for good or for ill. And I think, well, I'm just going to, I don't think it's uh, arbitrary that I picked love. I think love makes the most sense. Now it's interesting. I just finished editing Greg Boyd's, you know, Greg Boyd's got these books coming out with us at Fortress Press and the first one is 1,500 pages long, and it's called The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. And Greg is trying to reinterpret all of the – you'd be fascinated. You should have him on. He's reinterpreting all the Old Testament passages of violence through the lens of the cross. Hmm. Hmm. And so he dances like right up to the line of being a Marcionite, but I think doesn't quite – but he's so – he's – he he's so he's an evangelical right and he's a bible guy and he so wants the the bible to make sense so he fights so hard to get the old testament passages to make sense in light of the crucifixion of jesus and for me i agree with him that everything needs to be read through the cross and through like an easter lens i am just not that concerned with getting all the disparate pieces of christian and hebrew scripture to like fully align with one another and make perfect sense. But again, that's going to be a part of my proposal regarding the cross that's probably going to, for, for more conservative Christians, for evangelicals, for instance, it's going to leave them like, feel like my proposal is lacking, probably. Well, I mean, but isn't like, I feel like there's two ways to have a canon within a canon. Honestly and dishonestly. And that like nobody, everybody that says they believe in plenary inspiration, right? None of them preach as much from Leviticus as they do from Romans, or as, as much from Numbers as they do from the Gospel of John. You know, and, on some level, practically, everybody waits, everybody reads certain texts in light of other texts, right? That's just yeah. it, what you do, right? Yeah, I mean, even Amish people, you know, like pick and choose, like, well, no cars, but you can have a buggy, 
And, you know, like you can't have a cell phone, but you can have a phone that's like wired into your wall or what. Even the most conservative evangelicals that you and I know, they're not, they don't make their women cover their heads in church or whatever. Do you think that the biggest problem today with the atonement language is that instead of saying Jesus died because God loves us, like as an expression of that, it gets muffled sometimes into something like because Jesus died, now God can love us. Oh, yeah. Is that where it turns? Is that where it turns? Kind of like where, where, where somehow there's this schizophrenia in God. I think what you're one of the problems is that it really bifurcates the first and second persons of the Trinity in a way that would make make most Orthodox theologians very uncomfortable. Like, wouldn't it make Bart uncomfortable that the mission of the Father and the mission of the Son are really at odds with one another until? something is accomplished on the cross. Yeah, I mean, even Calvin says that. I think it's in Calvin's commentary on 1 John where it says, okay, why were we enemies? You know, God, Christ died. And Calvin says, well, I mean, this is rhetorical and maybe it's an important rhetorical force here, but he says, you know, but if God wasn't favorably disposed to be gracious, why would we even have the incarnation while we're restrained? So, you know, like, I mean, even like, I mean, you just have to, the whole thing doesn't make sense. Yeah. Unless the mission of Christ is, is, is the mission of divine love. You know, it doesn't, the whole thing just falls apart. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's such a funny thing that people are so rabidly and doggedly committed to this version of the atonement at, in which the Father is really against his own creation, like is so disgusted with his own creation. Um that he can't, he simply can't even l- look at us, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me like, isn't, isn't it something like the, any kind of experience we have of something like the wrath of God is something like, I mean, you know, when we're alienated from someone that loves us, their gaze can change. Like it can mm-hmm. evoke shame and guilt, uh, even though their disposition hasn't changed. It's yeah. our disposition to them maybe that has changed. Right, right. So I feel, I feel like on some level, right, it's, it's a... Sometimes people have such a fickle por- portrait of God, right? When we're the ones that are probably more mercurial and fickle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, um, th- there's a certain part of that uh, old Campus Crusade diagram of the chasm between God and humanity, you know, and the cross is the bridge over that chasm. I, I wouldn't dispute the fact that there's a chasm between God and humanity. I just, don't think that God put it there or that God um, ever wanted it to be there or that God in, in like, I mean, it's so funny that the, 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 um, the internal like discrepancies in the whole, you know, conservative reform thing of like God created us with perfect foreknowledge of the world and of our act- actions in the world. And yet God is totally pissed off that we screwed <laughs> up. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean it's it it's nonsensical, you know. And then so, they fall back on, well, God's you know God's ways are not our ways. So you you are not just a well other than now Hollywood consultant and writer and theologian. You actually are the academic editor, right, for Fortress. I'm not academic. I'm like the trade editor. You're the trade editor. Okay, the popular books that you publish that tend to be pretty reflective. I mean, like we've had several guests, like. Richard Beck and Jeffrey Pugh and Jason Michelli. And they've all been very popular. I mean, the book, people liked the book, a lot of people bought the books and they were great guests. Uh, in that, in, in your role as like 
somebody who's a theologian also is, works in the book industry. Like, what do, what is that? spot tell you about American religious life? Like what do you get, do you, being on the inside of book publishing, does it give you like a new window into like the religious landscape in America based on like, you know, what people are pitching, what is selling, how you think through that? Absolutely. And I don't know that, I don't know that I can sum it up exactly what I see is, is happening. Um, but I will say this, uh, at first, when we started doing this, we thought we would do a lot of books by – like we would take that old Brazos model of you take like the real popular uh, theologian person and you ask them to write popular level books, you know, like uh, Rodney Clapp or, you know, what Resident Aliens, like you take that model of Howard Wasson Williman doing it. And I have found it is so incredibly hard to get – people who are immersed in the academic world to write along the po- along popular lines. Like Richard Beck and Jeff Pugh are two exceptions. And I would say for Richard, it's because he teaches undergrads and because he blogs. So he has learned how to write popularly. And for Jeff, it's the same. It's like he teaches undergrads and he's very in- involved in culture. But I've gotten a lot of book proposals and like, um, books like full manuscripts that have come in from professors who've said, oh yeah, like, look, this book has no footnotes in it. And I read it and I'm like, it is unreadable to the, to the average person. It is completely unreadable. And you know, you just can't, it, it is, it is economically impossible for us to publish books that sell more than or less than, you know, three or 4,000 copies. Like you can't even stay in business. Um, so that's one of the things I've learned, and I'd say if I wanted to expand that out into a kind of a broader lesson, it's that at people who are in the confessional academy, who are teaching theology, biblical studies, pastoral care, etc., stuff like that, really, really, I don't know if they don't read or if they don't watch TV or they just have really have a hard time communicating in ways that general readers could embrace. Yeah, you think that that's because in the academy, like basically if you're a, a scholar of any renown, you, you sort of make your way by using idiosyncratic specialist language to maximize difference. So it's like, well, we both study Luther or Freud or Schleiermacher, but even though most people couldn't tell what we're saying apart, we're saying our interpretations are irreconcilable and we're using words that most people wouldn't understand to make that point. And exactly. so you're, you wind up in a silo and, and and most of the time, like being a pastor or being a, 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 an author for a wider audience, right? You're a generalist trying to make trying to use language that bridges the gaps in human experiences, as opposed to maximize. Yeah, I mean, like you and I even saw that. Think of the case study of like the systematics department at Princeton, and their different ways they interpret Bart, which they consider to be just like. They can barely speak to each other about right, Bart because right. their interpretations so, are so sometimes different. literally, sometimes literally, <laughs> and yet, and yet, you step half a foot outside that circle, and people are like, "Who's Carl Bart?" Like, I don't, you know, I've said to authors before, I'm like, I if I see a quote, for, you don't understand. I'm like, nobody knows who Paul Ricoeur is, and by nobody, I mean like speaking as a percentage of the American population. Zero percent, you know, zero percent of people know who Paul Ricoeur is. So you cannot have a Paul Ricoeur quote in the first 
like chapter of your book, and you can never in the entire book have a block quote from Paul Ricoeur or Stanley Hauerwas for that matter. Like nobody knows who Stanley Hauerwas is, even though he's Time Magazine in 1990, whatever, said he's the most popular, you know, American theologian or whatever. People just don't know. So like you're the authority. It's your name on the spine of the book. Just write it. But here's the thing in academia, like, oh my gosh, if I do that, People are going to think I'm an arrogant ass. Like, I didn't come up with this argument. Some obscure scholar you've never thought of, heard of before came up with this argument. And I have to not only footnote that person, I have to quote them in the text. And I'm like, you do not have to do that. But see, in the academy, if you did that, people would tear you to shreds. Yeah, you're a teacher in seminary. You went to Fuller and you had Miroslav Wolf. And I mean, I look at Wolf as a real exception in this room. He's a guy that is a top flight theologian, but has been fairly successful writing books Yep. To a to a broader audience. I mean, why like why why aren't there more people like that? You can count on one hand those people, Scott. Like it's Brueggemann, it's Hauerwas, it's Wolf. Um, it's it's a small. It's like a list you can count on one hand. You know, and and we've really lost that. You know, there's such a strong tradition in the American uh, theological kind of trajectory all the way from Jonathan Edwards to like the Niebuhr brothers of people really writing books for the general American public to try to change hearts and minds. And now, you know, the joke is you go to the American Academy of Religion the weekend before Thanksgiving and you like read through that 500 page book that they don't even print anymore. Now you have to like download the app to get it because it was killing so many trees. But you read the obscurantist titles of the sessions that are being given. Just think, how does this have any connection to like anybody anywhere? Oh, you know, like there's a, there'll be a session on like the use of the second heiress in third John or something like that. You work for a Lutheran publisher, Fortress, you know, the ELCA related publisher. So it's the 500th anniversary of the Reformation this year. Mm-hmm. What, like, do you see, I mean, what do you think is the legacy of the Reformation today in North America? That's like a whole podcast or more when you ask that question. In, in some ways, I think that like uh, the Reformation is responsible for the Enlightenment and like massive advances in Western culture to move beyond like Catholic uh, mythological feudalism. But on the other hand, I agree with Charles Taylor that it's probably also responsible for secularism, ultimately. Huh, yeah, right. I mean, say more about that. Well, because it's so, um, it just pulled the rug out from under the Catholic magisterium as like the arbiter of truth and authority and said, no, 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 that like now you're the authority. Like, here's the Bible in German, man. You can just sit with it on your lap and read it yourself and figure it out yourself. And, oh, you don't have to be Catholic anymore. You can choose your own church or, you know, you follow that down the line and you get to the point of like, or you can choose no church. You can choose no faith. Like that Pandora's box was opened by Luther and you cannot close that Pandora's box. Yeah, it's interesting that, that you know, what seems to me to also have fallen on hard times. This sense of uh, the, the proclamation of God's free grace, that, uh-huh. that 
for ambiguous human beings whose soul souls can be you know mercurial and insecure and anxiety ridden and that 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 God's word of forgiveness and healing comes in a way that you you can look outside yourself to put your trust in um and and and, and comfort for ambiguous people which i think most of us are it seems to me that 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 message right has fallen on hard times in in both evangelical and mainline circles the truth in something like sub like the, the vicarious redemption is like ever we love movies where there's a sacrifice like a vicarious or we love movies where like like les miserables where you know somebody is literally gets imputation they get treated like they don't deserve and yeah. that changes them yeah but i just feel like the practical insights of that of that like th- those are the pra- that's where i think if people were excited about that 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 would be liberating for a lot of people who are in a pressure cooker, anxiety-filled sort of society. But it seems like we just like, I feel like sometimes we celebrate, we get more hung up on things like doctrines of scripture, doctrines of the church or things like that, that tend, I think, to be abstract as opposed to how people experience healing and wholeness in their lives, which is concrete. I mean, that's what everybody's looking for. For me, it comes to, a, it comes to, to its most poignant kind of salient fact with the raising of kids, three kids. And, um, you know, last night we, every Sunday night at about nine o'clock, we like all five of us get together, Courtney and I, we have three kids and we, you know, we like, I read something from the Bible, we pray. And I think like, how do I talk to my kids about this? Well, for instance, there, there was a suicide at the high school last week and my son was friends with this kid and he Mm. went to the funeral. It was Catholic and the Right before the funeral, there was like a visitation with an open casket. So mm-hmm. he sees his first dead body and it's like, it's his friend who committed suicide. Sat with him at the lunch table every, every day. And um, like, how do we talk about that? I really don't talk to my kids about, in the traditional ways, about um, <clears throat> being sinful or being, you know what I'm saying? Like, um, we were born into sin and things like that, but I will definitely use talk of like brokenness, like, you know, we're all really deeply broken and wounded as people. And because of the like personal family trauma that we've been through as a family through like a massive divorce and custody fight and things like that, um, they really get that too. be like, you know, we're everybody's broken and everybody carries a lot of pain with them. And I think am I like softening the Christian message by talking in like more psychological terms with them? And I guess at this point, I don't think that. I don't think I'm like cutting corners on the Christian message by using that kind of terminology. It just makes a lot more sense to where they are. And I don't think it's non-theological. Somebody asked me the other day, that we were, I was actually doing, doing a podcast with somebody that said, a couple months ago, and said, he said, uh, it sounds like you're uh, conflating the spiritual and the psychological. I said, I don't want to conflate them. I want to equate them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's perfect. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, right. But I think that makes sense because if the fourth century fathers are trafficking in Middle Platonism or Neoplatonism, which makes sense, right? Like, yeah. I think for us, 
uh, you know, Nietzsche write on so many things. And I think one of the, you know, that it's psychology would replace theology as the queen of the sciences and everything. I mean, just look at every academic discipline and how psych, how psychology plays such a role in, in the self-understanding of the disciplines and stuff. And I think that makes complete sense that that's the lingua franca yeah. of human experience, at least in the West. Yeah. But so, so I, I mean, that's for sure the world my kids were growing up in. So why not lean into that? And, and bring theology and scriptural resources alongside of that and give them, you know, it just gives them a diff, more, a, a broader framework to understand their own experience of life and quest for the divine. And it's even interesting just watching these three kids in the living room as we sit there and pray and think like, these three kids are having very different experiences in their quest for the divine. As you like raise kids and as a, a churchman and a theologian, somebody that cares about the wider church. Like, what are you hoping gets written in the next few years? Like, what do you think, geez, if we could get good books, good reflection on this topic, on this insight, that it would really go a long way to helping the church be a redemptive, you know, uh, presence in the world. I mean, what do you think needs to be You know what I think is, what I think just looking at my kids, and my kids are 16, 15, and 12, there needs to be some serious, serious theological work done on what kind of place, theologically speaking, the internet is. And I mean that mm. like if, if, you know, like Wendell Berry made his name by talking about like what kind of a life is lived in this actual tangible world. We need uh, like a Wendell Berry of the internet for kids because I cannot and people who are listening to podcasts and have kids who are adolescents like mine. They'll, I'm sure, agree. I cannot overstate. It would be impossible for me to overstate how much a part of my kids' lives the internet is. And I don't, I don't just mean social media, but I mean like the videos. I mean like the group texting. I mean like all of that. I mean that their 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 devices that they carry with them at all times that I take away from them regularly, and they get like panicky. I'm running a junior high camp this summer. For one week, a junior high church. God camp. bless you. I know, man. They've like called me out of re- youth ministry retirement to run a junior high camp. And we made the decision. Like the church council of this church basically forced this decision and said, you need to ban all devices from camp for a week. Well, I know for a fact we will have parents who will not send their kids to camp because their kids cannot have a device. I know for a fact that we will have college kids who will not be counselors for us because they cannot hmm. have a device. And I know for a fact that there will be kids and parents of kids who will try to sneak devices up to camp so they can constantly be in communication with one another. The parents sneak in the contraband. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, that's, I think about like some people say, and this might be overstated, but but there's a body of work out there. So, you know, it's Augustine kind of creates with the confessions, some sort of the interior self, right? right. Or, you know, and Homer and stuff, you don't say it. But now... We couldn't imagine, you know, Western life without this sense of like, there's the inner me that only I know. And then yeah. there's the me. And now it's like, we've got a third me. We've got yes. like the inner me. We've got them walking around me. And then we've got the avatar constructed, you know, digital me that's in, ex- existing on Facebook in group chats and think like, you know, like, it's just a weird, it's, it's, it's like I mean, another if, if self. You think, if you think back to like something that you and I both pro- back in our day, you know, back in the like aughts were reading Baudrillard about the panopticon and thinking, oh yeah, mm-hmm. we're all we're all on camera all the time. That's not even that doesn't even scratch the surface of what it means to be constantly 
communicating who you are on the internet to people you know and people you don't know who are all watching who you are all the time. I mean, it is crazy. And it's like, it's also like, um, no communication is private. So like, uh, there was a controversy in, um, in the high school this, this year about like whether they were going to cancel AP European history and make everybody take world history starting next year. And so it was like, you know, one of these very, you know, like, People were all up in arms and they love AP European history and whatever. Well, my point all this is like people would send emails to the principal and like I think we should keep AP Euro for blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And the principal Mm -hmm. would write back an email and then kids would take a screen grab of the principal's email back to them and then group text it around to everybody and post it on social media sites. So like even this – Think of, think of what it means to be a principal of a high school now, knowing that any correspondence you have with a kid or a parent is very likely going to be, a, be used publicly. Yeah, it's interesting because in some ways we're a more permissive culture, but also a more shame-driven and oh, absolute yeah. like shaming and banning and, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I hope somebody writes that book for you. Tony, your podcast is Killer Serials. Yep. And Killer your Serials. most recent book is... Did God Kill Jesus? That's right. And if anybody is a great writer and has got a internet theological book exploration idea. Send it my way. Thanks for hanging out with us. Hey, it's great to be here. Good day to you both. Good day, David, coming to us from Mockingbird HQ, the Mocking Cave in Charlottesville, Virginia, <laughs> and sitting in for Sarah Condon. This week we have Charlotte Donlin, who would be coming to us from Alabama, but is not anywhere close to Alabama, are you, Charlotte? No, I'm not. <laughs> I am at Whidbey Island, which is 30 miles north of Seattle, off the Washington coast. I want to be there. Whidbey Island sounds like a Wes Anderson uh, uh, movie. I think it could be one. <laughs> well, Does it have that sentimental Wes Anderson redemptive feel to it? Yeah, and there's like this pack of deer that roam um, and let you come up to them. And they're kind of creepy, but lovely at the same time. So I think that could work. Yeah, <laughs> sounds like it. Mm-hmm. Well, we have so much to talk about. But, you know, it's interesting. I was watching news today and they're arguing about... It's budget season, and both parties, whoever's making the budget, everybody goes back and forth. This cut, this should be included in Meals on Wheels, or this versus that. And, but I was thinking, you know, they're, they're talking about, as they do every year, how budgets are moral documents and talk about priorities and, and where you got. And I just thought, I was thinking about our donors who make things like this podcast possible. I was very moved that people sit and make space in their budget for Mockingbird, and mm. because they, they're blessed by it, and they think it's a blessing. and So... Thank you to our donors out there and our supporters and whether or not they cut meals on wheels. I hope you don't need meals on wheels. And if you do, I, I hope you get them. Um, and God bless you for your generosity. Yes. Thank you. Amen to that. Let's talk bad self-help books. 
Or anti-self-help books. Anti-self-help books. This feels like a wheelhouse uh, item for us. I'm not okay. Neither are you. Who cares? This is a piece by Henry Alfred of the New York Times covering what he considers to be a new genre of books that have kind of come up in response or in reaction to the self-help genre, uh, which he's calling anti-self-help or anti-improvement. Uh, and it the way you can kind of identify these books, and by the way, we actually included a list of them in our mental health issue. I didn't know it was the new genre, but uh, he says that you can kind of, um, if you go to Barnes and Noble and you look for the books that have the most sort of f bombs on the cover, essentially, that's how they signal you're in the anti help self uh, self help genre. Is that you use a curse word in the title, um, which he thinks is only going to escalate. But uh, what struck me was this uh, Swedish uh, book that he he highlights, which is actually does not include a lot of vulgarity. It's called Stand Firm: uh, How to Sort of Withhold Withstand the um, the self-help movement. And it's written by a guy named Brinkman uh, who writes, our secular age is shot through with fundamental existential uncertainty and angst. And this makes it difficult to stand firm. And it's kind of reminiscent of the Max von Sydow character in um, Hannah and her sister's Woody Allen's movie. And uh, the book sort of details that it takes the stand that life is hard and you're not special. So instead of focusing on shallow quantities like happiness or success as defined by others in our culture of constant acceleration, you should acknowledge your limitations and learn to love your morning bowl of pebbles. Uh, my favorite little thing comes in, in the chapter on dwell on the past. Uh, he says, when someone presents plans for innovation and visions for the future, tell them that everything was better in the old days. Explain to them that the idea of progress is only a few hundred years old and is, in fact, destructive. Um, kind of laugh out loud uh, line, especially the way that Alfred draws it out in terms of, you know, an accountant uh, talking to his boss. But um, anyway, I, it's pretty interesting. What, what do you guys think? So FB and FP, F-bombs and Fruity Pebbles. <laughs> so you're thankful for your pebbles. Actually, Charlotte, you told me that that's – you researched this, and actually I'm, I I thought it was originally Fruity Pebbles, like the Flintstones. So I yeah. thought it balances out life. But you said you found that, that actually the etymology of this expression is is not what I thought. Well, it's possible it came from a proverb that I found in a 1910 publication – about a hen who wanted to eat rocks and pebbles every day. And the hen had teeth at first. And because of eating the rocks and pebbles, she lost all her teeth. And there's a lesson in there somewhere. Um, but throughout the proverb, it talks about eating your pebbles. So maybe that's where it comes from. Or it could mean fruity pebbles or cocoa pebbles. I'm not sure. <laughs> I love fruity pebbles for the record. I'm pro fruity pebbles. At the Langhorn Coffee Shop here around the corner where I live, they have a these pancakes that are fruity pebble pancakes. So they Ooh. actually have fruity pebbles baked into Yummy. The, it's pretty it's I mean you you need like a shot of insulin afterwards if you order it. It comes with like insulin if you're older and angioplasty, but it's pretty amazing. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. You can also make rice crispy treats with fruity pebbles instead of rice krispies, which is an yes. option. For those so adding extra pebbles. extra sugar into the Rice crispy treat yeah. uh, like equation. <laughs> I like it.
And we also have this piece uh, that talks about why people are looking for better lives that probably don't exist. Yeah, it's from Quartz. Mark Manson writes, you're probably searching for a better life, but what if you already have it? Which is, I'm not sure I'm into that title so much, but he talks about a friend of his who's super successful in both love and work, and but also always trying to get to that next level. And he was thinking about hiring a life coach to get to the next level. He said, well, what? how do you know there is a next level? Um, he said, I don't know. I've just, I, I always feel like I need to be improving myself no matter what. To which Manson says, that, my friend, might actually be the problem. But then what he goes into is, I think, a real sort of sincere meditation on the law. Um, and what Pat Riley, the great Knicks coach or Lakers coach of the NBA, talks about the disease of more. The disease of more. I actually preached a sermon called The Tyranny of More. I should have called it to The Disease of More. Riley said that the disease of more explains why teams who win championships are often ultimately dethroned, not by other better teams, but by forces from within the organization itself. Riley said that the 1980 Lakers didn't get back to the finals the next year because everyone became too focused on themselves. The players, like most people, want more. At first, that more was winning the championship, but once players have that championship, it's no longer enough. The more becomes other things, more money, more TV commercials, more endorsements and accolades, more playing time, more plays called for them, more media attention. And as a result, what was once a cohesive group of hardworking men begins to fray. Egos get involved, Gatorade bottles are thrown, and the psychological composition of the team changes. What was once a perfect chemistry of bodies and minds becomes a toxic, atomized mess. Players feel entitled to ignore the small, unsexy tasks that actually win championships, believing they've earned the right to not do it anymore. And as a result, what was the most talented team ends up failing. I wonder, by the way, this is March Madness week. I wonder if this is why college basketball tends to be more, um, people seem to like it more than professional basketball. Um but he, he goes on to sort of extrapolate to say, most of us live our lives this way. That we're constantly chasing our imagined perfect 10. If our life is sort of a seven, we always are getting, trying to get to the 10. And that actually, um, this is what psychologists call the, the, the hedonic treadmill. We'll get to this a little bit more. People who are constantly striving for a better life end up expending a ton of effort only to end up in the same place. And then there's the great, the great line here. He says, does this mean that there's no point in doing anything? You know, shall we sin more that grace may abound? No, it means that we need to be motivated in life by something more than our own happiness. It means that we have to be driven by something greater than ourselves. Life, it turns out, is not a checklist. It's not a mountain to scale. It's not a golf game or a beer commercial, whatever other cheesy analogy you want to insert here. Is life a beer commercial, guys? If it is, I want it to be the one with uh, Amy Schumer (laughs) and and Seth Seth Rogen, if it is. I hope it's not a beer commercial, um, <laughs> or at least my life does not look like a beer commercial. Um, so maybe that means I'm doing something wrong if it's supposed to be. Uh, the research he included about um, everyone trying to get to a 10 when you eventually wind up back at seven is fascinating to me. And I feel like it might be life changing. The idea that seven is enough and like I might get a seven tattooed on my wrist to remind me of that because I, I think we can get caught up in wanting more, especially with social media and Instagram and Facebook and you seeing like all these people who seem to have more than you, whether not just material things, but relational and um, even emotional health. Um, knowing that seven is enough is kind of freeing. 
I feel like that approach is going to either be insulting or humiliating people. Like, I was saying, well, seven's up. Somebody's like, what? You're saying I'm only a seven at this point? <laughs> or it's like, you're like, seven? Oh my gosh, I'm hoping to get up to five. You're a seven? I mean, it's just one of those things that once the, the match, it's, it's it, I don't know what the right metric is. Maybe five. I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. So it's, you have a, a problem with number. like that number, like seven. I just, I think, like, uh, I just, I think back to the days when I was a Pittsburgh 10. Oh yeah. There <laughs> we go. That's all. That's my number. My number is Pittsburgh 10, which is probably like a four, a five and a half really on, on, on most, uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of sunshine out there. Now though, they've cleaned it up. I mean, it's a tech city. It's very sunny. So I'm probably not even that anymore. The new Pittsburgh. Yeah. The he's, Pittsburgh. he's, now you're a Pittsburgh nine. The, uh, w- this struck me because this very week I got an email from someone who's been coming to our church and, asking in no uncertain terms is like, it seems to me that you're saying and preaching this grace message all the time is like that people shouldn't try. They shouldn't go out there and do anything. And of course, that's the question that always comes up. That's the question when you, when it comes up, when he says, no, like, um, the, it's okay wh- where you are, what, what, you know, God actually has accepted you, uh, in, through his son, in his son as, as where you are and that life, even your religious project is not a project of more. And if it becomes a project of more, just like any other project in your career, in your family, in your social media, it will become exhausting and it will produce the opposite of doing more. It will produce doing worse or doing less. And that, um, that is one of the key psychological insights people get uncomfortable when you map psychological insights onto the gospel but you know it seems too transparently obvious to even not mention so um that's where my mind also went with this one i'm setting my apple watch as we speak to not increase my goals anymore <laughs> <laughs> hey maybe David, like maybe in jesus we're all tens you know yeah, exactly. a, I, think, I think that's true. I'm a gospel 10. I'm a gospel 10. Yes. I'm making a t-shirt. I'm a gospel 10. Or maybe it's uh, just that the, the, the scale has been dismantled. You know, there's no, there's no that. ones, there's no tens. I don't maybe know. you could like, the, the t-shirt could be like a gospel 10 and then a dismantle, a scale that's smashed. <laughs> that would be a, dude, that, we should market that. <laughs> copyright. Don't anybody, that's copyrighted right now. Bunch I of broken right numbers. Right exactly. So, David, answer me this. Why is my life so hard? Well, it, the, your life is so hard, Scott, because you don't live in Pittsburgh. You actually live in Langhorn. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, just exactly. kidding. The, the, what you're referring to is this next piece from Freakonomics. Uh, you know, the, it's their sort of a required uh, podcast of the week, it, which is um, in which Dubner talks to Tom Gilovich and Shai Davidai, I hope I'm saying that right, about the headwinds-tailwinds uh, asymmetry, which in which they actually talk about the same thing that Manson was talking about. It kind of, it dovetails very nicely, Scott, um, with, and Charlotte, with uh, this, I talk about a hedonic treadmill. What, what do we mean, though? Because they're asking, why is your life so hard? They say it has everything to do with this headwinds-tailwinds asymmetry. Uh, in addition to being a clever piece of experimental research, it has the amazing capacity, this asymmetry, to make you feel both much better about your life and much worse. It's basically talking about how we build resentments and how those resentments can curdle our well-being. Now, we would all benefit from feeling some more gratitude. Okay, sounds very obvious stuff as a lot of this social science stuff is, but these guys say some really interesting things. They say, we wanted to try to get a handle on how or why it's so easy for people to feel like life has made things harder for them than it has for other people. And at the same time, try to understand why it might be hard for people to be as grateful as perhaps we should. 
This idea of the headwind-tailwind asymmetry should be familiar to anyone who cycles or runs for exercise. Sometimes you're running or cycling into the wind and it's not pleasant. You're aware of it the whole time. It's retarding your progress and you can't wait until the course changes so that you can get the wind at your back. When that happens, you're grateful for about a minute. And very quickly, you no longer notice the wind at your back that's helping push you along. And what's true when it comes to running or cycling is true of life generally, which kind of I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in... I'm up the creek there because I don't do either of these things. Um, but psychologists refer to this very thing as the hedonic treadmill. You run really hard to get something. The thing that you get that you're aiming for feels good when you've got it, but then you adapt to it and you have to run even ever faster to get more and more. They also talk about this as the availability bias, meaning we tend to overweight the experiences that are readily available in our memories, um, which they argue are more likely to be headwinds than tailwinds. We pay attention to the barriers in front of us because we have to get over them or get through them in some way. We have to overcome them. We don't have to pay attention to those things that are boosting us along. We can just be boosted along. And that fundamental asymmetry in attention is the headwinds, tailwinds, asymmetry, meaning that it's easier to summon emotions that are the opposite of gratitude. In fact, it's easier to summon the emotions that are the enemies of gratitude, the big ones being greed and envy. And the great example here is there, they have talked about how siblings um, talk about how it was always harder to be them than it was their, their brother or sister. And Republicans and Democrats say the same thing. It's harder to be a Republican. The, the, the Democrats really have it, all cards are stacked against them. And everyone actually feels that way. We're talking a little bit about self-pity here, clearly. But we're talking also about being a sports fan. Sports fans think that the schedule, no, no sports fan thinks that the schedule that their team has is a fair schedule. Um, no academic it, they talk about think they all think the other sub discipline has it easier. It's easier to publish. That's one of the funniest parts when they're talking about the development <laughs> developmental versus adolescence, like psych people. And well, your sample sizes are harder to wrangle. I mean, just amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. The one thing we kept coming back to is this idea that siblings always feel like the other one had it easier. And I'll let you guys say that, but I, uh, say what you think in your own uh, experience. But I will say that. Um, Simeon had it a lot easier than I did. I would think he had it harder as a genius, like <laughs> with a raw intellectual prowess that like it's <laughs> tough because it's hard to be understood when you're that bright. I got to take a shot though, because uh, if I'd had it as easy as he and no expectation and just totally catered to and just, you know, in every sense, made, you know, all obstacles cleared, you know, I would be a genius too, Scott. So just kidding. Just kidding. Charlotte, what, where are you on this? Um, I have an older brother and I think he had it easier than me. Like it, but after reading this article, I he probably thinks I had it easier. So, and we're probably both right, and we're probably both wrong. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah, I I do see this with my kids probably more so than looking at my own sibling relationship. My I have a fourteen year old daughter and a twelve year old son, and they both are throwing this around all the time. They mm. always compare their um, journey to their siblings and how the other has it much better. <laughs> it's one of the hard parts, I think, of just having two two siblings. Third, third, you get to kind of, they get to be the variable a little bit. Yeah, yeah. We, um, from a two standpoint, I mean, we decided on two because we are more of a man-to-man defense type parenting arrangement. When people have a third child or fourth child, yeah. we, my husband and I look at each other and we're like, who takes care of those children? Because we we can only do one on one. 
Yeah, I mean, there are trade-offs, obviously, to all these things, aren't there? Yes. It was interesting to know, too, that he was talking about, like, when people vote and, and like, you know, we received, like, a lot of political upheaval, both here and in Europe. And he's like, you know, people don't look at all the prosperity, all the things they have great going for them. They do focus on what they perceive as headwinds, you know, whether it's, oh, my gosh, it's we don't have enough gun control or it's uh, that, you know, uh, we're going down to social, whatever it is, like whatever you perceive. So you just kind of uh, focus on the headwinds sociological political it's just as amazing i was like man this is uh this is as close to a psychological theory of flourishing and well-being as i've seen (laughs) i mean it's it's a it's you know it's a good uh, shorthand for one anyway yeah it's really interesting i saw a young man leaning on his wooden crutch And he called out to me Don't ask for so much And a young woman Leaning in her darkened door And she called out to me And last but not least, and it's funny because I thought a lot about this uh, piece in conversation with what I wrote this week. Yeah, I was wondering actually, Scott, where um, having then read it, the way that we think, well, the way that Christians think of themselves as where they are in the larger culture. Um, we, we're surrounded right now by this. Uh, Rod Dreyer has put out this book, The Benedict Option, and say what you will about it. It has certainly sparked discussion, and David Brooks wrote about it this week. And our own Scott Kent Jones wrote something called The Zacchaeus Option, which I think is a really wonderful, wonderful, brave kind of um, article. You know, I'd, I'd weighed in myself last year, but kind of, I, I love someone on Twitter is like, what's the option called for people that are sick of options? <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> I was like, I kind of exactly. felt like I'd said what I need, what I felt and go like, let's move on. But you know, we're not moving on cause it's, it's everywhere right now. And Scott, you, um, you, Drew on both the show Imposters, which I haven't seen, but I loved the way that I'll let people read the piece to figure out how you lead in with that. It's, it's, I, I, I think it's sort of brilliant and it makes me actually want to see the show, but also makes me deeply afraid about, um, you know, who I'm, who I'm married to. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, but uh, you, you were outlining something called the Zacchaeus option and you're doing it with the help of, uh, this wonderful Czech, uh, priest that has influenced you and by, by extension, all of us, this Thomas Halleck, Halleck, um, who writes this about the role of being uh, a priest. Now he grew up in the Iron Curtain, was a Czech priest, sort of educated in a secret seminary or something like that. Yeah, there was one seminary that you could go to, sort of like the established churches in China. And the one seminary, which is totally monitored and watered down, you know, like by, you know, uh, by the uh, oppressive regime. But he couldn't even get into that one because he knew Václav Havel and he like people that he knew were already understood. So he 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 was he he got blacklisted from the communist controlled seminary. Yeah. Well, Scott, why don't you give us the elevator pitch of this of the Zacchaeus option? Tell tell us tell well, us what 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 when now now that it's going to become a meme now that it's a hashtag exactly. hashtag Zen up. Uh, it sounds kind of Buddhist too. Uh, Scott, what is the Zacchaeus option? Well, I mean, I just say I think it. it it was more 
in reading Halleck, you know, I, I mean, I think of, as we talked about the Freakonomics thing, the headwinds, tailwinds thing, right? I mean, here's a guy who didn't grow up in a place like we're living. He grew up in a place where it, it, it's, it's, you know, Christian faith is by and large verboten. I mean, it's just you know, targeted for extermination and severe oppression. So here's a guy that has better perspective, I think, on tailwinds and headwinds. And, you know, now after the, you know, after the Iron Curtain came down, this guy has had a, a ministry in which he's baptized, I think, thousands of adults. And he's uh, he's at a university parish and ministers to professors and students and their families. And this guy is drawn to, in his words, the Zacchaeuses of the world, the, those who are are they, they're they're drawn to Jesus and yet remain far off. And, and he seems to has, have defined his own ministry largely in light of them. And, you know, you, you find such sympathy to people who are outside the faith and you, you, you see, you know, like this, you know, again, part of the thing, I think that like, once you have a bifurcated anthropology, you're screwed. Once there's an us and a them and he just resists at every turn, us, them kind of thinking and, and, and is able to see in, in Colossians one kind of like all things in Christ. And so it's, it's a refreshingly non-defensive, uh, hopeful, but not Pollyannish or, you know, like falsely optimistic take on the relationship of the church in the world in relationship to those that are at a distance from Jesus. Well, let me, I'm going to read to you. Um, I want, and Charlotte, I'm dying to hear what you think of this. I want to read Halick's own words that you reproduced here, Scott. He talks about being a priest. He's saying, I feel that my chief purpose is to be an understanding neighbor for those who find it impossible to join the exultant crowds beneath the unfurled flags of whatever color for those who keep their distance. I like Zacchaeus's. I think I've been given a gift for understanding them. Uh, people often construe the distance that Zacchaeus's maintain as an expression of their quote unquote superiority, but I don't think they're right. Things aren't that simple. In my experience, it is the res- more the result of shyness. In some cases, the reason for their aversion to crowds, particularly those ones with slogans and banners, is that they suspect that the truth is too fragile to be chanted on the street. Most of these people did not choose their place on the margins voluntarily. And whether or not, you know, secularists can be considered on the margins is a different question. But it could well be that some of them are also reticent because like Zacchaeus, they are all too aware that their own house is not in order. And they realize or at least suspect that changes need to be made in their own lives. Maybe unlike the unfortunate person in one of Jesus's parables, they realize they're not properly attired for the wedding and therefore cannot take a seat among the guests of honor at the wedding feast. They're still on the journey dusty and far from the goal. They are not yet, quote, ready to display themselves to others in the full light of day, maybe because they find themselves in a blind alley on their life's journey. And yet they sense the urgent moment when something of importance passes them by. It has the force of attraction as it had for Zacchaeus, who longed to set his eyes on Jesus. But sometimes, as in Zacchaeus's case, they hide their spiritual yearning with fig leaves from others and sometimes from themselves too. And then you talk, Scott, beautifully when you say that the Zacchaeus of the world need to be addressed by someone who doesn't see them as fundamentally alien. They need to be addressed by someone who can empathize with them, uh, empathize with the complex emotional and intellectual realities that cause their reticence and leave them at a distance. Uh, then um, I, w- I want to hear from, uh, from Charlotte on this, but I, there's a closing paragraph of yours that I'm going to read before we finish. 
Well, um, first of all, out of all of the many Benedict option responses out there, this is definitely one of my favorite ones. Um, I thought this might be coming, so I read several. Um, and this one is um, a different tone. It it recognizes, as Scott points out in the piece, um, he says, very often those from whom we are estranged, who are the objects of our exclusion, are much more like us than we'd like to admit. And I think that's like a fundamental um, thing we need to understand because the more we see that we are as estranged as those we think are as estranged, like the more we see that we're the same, the more compassion and love we can have for those who are um, the quote alien. So, mm. um, Dave, I also like in your piece about it a few months ago, um, where you point out that the Benedict option calls to the sinner in us as well as the saint and how we might want to respond to it. Um, and that, I think that's the part that a lot of the responses are missing. So I, I really appreciate this. And um, I definitely want to read this guy. Like he is on my, um, what's the Czech, not Chick um, author, the Czech author. Oh, uh, Thomas Halleck. Yeah. Halleck, yes. I want to read everything he's ever written. Um, <laughs> and I want to watch that show, Imposter. So this, I agree, this is a brilliant piece, a brilliant response. And um, one thing also... Um, When I interviewed Sarah Condon, she made a point during the interview when I asked her about how are we supposed to love our political enemies, her response was, we don't have political enemies. Like, we are the same. And if we don't see that we're in the same sinking ship, then then we're not seeing the truth of the gospel. So... Yeah, yeah, and Scott, basically what I think you're saying, and that's beautiful. I can't believe Sarah's response here was just amazing. Uh, is that we're all Zacchaeus, you know, and that there's yeah. actually not a huge difference. Uh, you know, we're all Zacchaeus at sometimes, and that is um, really a fundamental truth, I think. And one of the reasons I I wrote yesterday about the the latest thing about political correctness and a bunch of sort of everyone now, Cornell West and Robert George, agreeing that something has gone way too far, and what we're seeing in the academy um, with this difference between sort of intersectionality and sort of those who are allowed to speak and those who are not disinviting campus speakers is that there is such an entrenched us versus them that is going on that is deeply disturbing. That that's actually how it functions as a religion, and that's a, that's an indictment of religion. But that's what is going on. That is so. There's woke individuals who are sort of spend the rest of their life apologizing for being born. And then there's, there's the sort of righteous and it's all, and then there's the other people. Um, and so it divides so deeply and that's, what's ultimately troubling about it. Not that people are being told to be more sensitive because that's, people should be more sensitive. Um, so, on the other thing, I'll say my only fresh opinion here, and I think that actually your your piece incorporates this beautifully, is that that tweeter, that guy on Twitter was right. What's the option for people who are sick of options? In a sense, t- the second you talk about options, you're talking about a strategy that people are going to follow in a law, essentially some kind of uh, – even – even it, your, yours takes it into account, but that no one ever f- does anything consistently. So it's almost just like a bunch of noise. Uh, Jesus was consistent, and he had the Jesus option, and the rest of us are just people kind of <laughs> responding to it. And that's what I like about the quote-unquote Zacchaeus option is that it kind of places us as uh, people who it's not incumbent upon us to develop some totally coherent 
strategy for what's coming down the pike, but to sort of just be human beings in the world, living in faith, receptive to what God has for us. You say that Jesus speaks the same word to those inside the church as he does to, <clears throat> excuse me, as he does to the Zacchaeuses who remain at a distance. I know your name. I know your secret. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When we realize the word to us all is one word, not two, maybe we'll have a newfound patience for the Zacchaeuses of the world and a newfound patience with God as well. So, amen. Thank you for that contribution, Scott. What Do you have any closing uh, 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 addendums? I know that you and Bill Borer talked about this at length on New Persuasive Words, which people should check out. Yeah, we're we're kind of working through Halleck. Like, uh, we have no terminus yet. Like, we're just kind of slowly reading through his last book. And yeah, you know, I just want to share this one passage from Halleck that I think is incredibly important to me. And um, and and again, sort of what again, let's maybe it's headwinds, tailwind stuff. Um, he says at the same time, I felt that the message "God is dead" is only the first sentence, which must be followed by another a second sentence in the same way that Good Friday was an important message to us from God, but it was not the final one. God is dead. That sentence uttered at the end of the 19th century continued to fascinate for the next hundred years. Maybe it was not only a sentence about God and against God, but also one containing something of God's message to us. A God who has not endured death is not truly living. A faith that does not undergo Good Friday cannot attain the fullness of Easter. Crises of faith, both personal and in the histories of culture, are an important part of the history of faith, of our communication with God, who is concealed and returns again to those who do not stop waiting for the unique and eternal word to speak to them once more. So maybe the strange age in which we find ourselves called to be Christians is part of, it certainly is part of that ongoing uh, word that comes again and again and returns in strange, new and mysterious forms. And we just don't know what part it is. Mm. Wow. Thank you, friends. And yet another week ends, and so does this podcast, and God bless you both. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Mockingcast. As always, you can find any of the content we reference on the podcast on our website, mbird.com. If you like what you heard, please cruise on over to iTunes, give us a rating, maybe even write a review, hopefully a positive one. We exist because of the enthusiasm, support, and generosity of you, our readers and listeners. And for that, we are forever grateful. This podcast is produced by yours truly, Scott Jones, ably assisted by David Peterson. It's edited and technically beautified by Dustin Coons. Thanks again for listening and have a great weekend.